Listen again to God's word to Joshua from the first reading. Today I have removed the reproach of Egypt from you. The setting of the first reading is that the Israelites are at the end of their 40-year desert wanderings. They are about to observe the Passover, and they are just about to take Jericho, the first city they conquer as they finally enter the Promised Land. But God orders circumcision first, because somehow over the course of the 40-year wandering and a likely focus on the most basic aspects of survival, God's people had lost the practice of being marked by the covenant. What do we make of this word reproach? I checked other language editions of the Bible, and it's clear that the meaning of reproach is that God removed the shame, the disgrace, or blame from his people. And so reminding the Israelites that they belong to him and insisting on their bearing the physical mark of their belonging, God says, as we heard in the first reading, today I have removed the shame, the reproach of Egypt from you. What I want to emphasize here and what I think this line illustrates is the difference, the distinction between objective sin and the punishment we deserve for it versus the subjective impact, the harm, and the effects of sin on us. Digging deeper into the moral theology of the church, there is more to sin than the objective matter of its gravity and the removal of guilt and punishment by God's mercy. There is a subjective dimension as well to sin. Quite distinct from having been forgiven of sin in baptism or in confession, there can be what we might call psychological or emotional and spiritual factors which require the need for deeper and ongoing healing of the effects of sin. When God speaks of reproach, I think this can be said to highlight the subjective matter of sin, which we might call sort of its ripple effects, how it impacts us or the baggage of sin that we carry. The idea of reproach, the shame of our sin, highlights more than just the objective fact of sin. Rather, it highlights the ideas about ourselves, the messages about ourselves that we take from the fact of our sins. Oftentimes, these ideas or messages about ourselves that sin sort of speaks to us need to be rejected because they are not the voice of God. These negative messages are not what God speaks to us in his love for us. And this shame, these ideas or messages about ourselves, they often need a deeper healing beyond just absolution in the confessional. Archbishop Coakley has designated this weekend to be Safe Haven Sunday across the archdiocese to bring into the light the very difficult topic of pornography. For clarity, I'm using that word this one time in these remarks so that you know what I'm talking about. Going forward, I will use other references to the topic in order to protect younger ears. And I hope that you will appreciate my attempt to both treat a relevant topic that does touch upon salvation and our need to battle sin, 
while also seeking to limit exposing younger souls to this topic here at church by avoiding graphic descriptions. Recognizing the extremely widespread availability and use of explicit material, the Archbishop is leading us in the Archdiocese to face this topic for how it enslaves us, how it impacts even our children, and how the shame of that struggle can keep someone locked in darkness and falling backward in the journey of holiness. While the focus this weekend is the danger of explicit material and equipping parents to guard children, the truth is that this notion of reproach and shame can well be applied to any sin of our lives, whatever causes us to dwell in darkness. I'm delighted that Safe Haven Sunday gives us a coordinated effort to turn attention to the topic of explicit material. The particular focus for us this Sunday is to equip parents to protect your children in a sexualized culture. So as you leave Mass today, and as I noted just a few moments ago, we have this booklet resource to go along with this effort across, across the archdiocese. This resource is specific to treating this topic for parents of children and youth. And so if you have children in the home, I want you to make sure you pick up a booklet. There's no shame in taking up that resource as an aid to your parenting. And you will note on the booklet's front cover and in its first pages an invitation for parents to sign up for a seven-day challenge that will provide a crash course of sorts via email of lessons and practices parents should observe to address this topic in the home. The statistics on the industry that promotes explicit material and the statistics on first exposure ages, on the percent of men and women and youth who use this material, the frequency of viewing this material, and the amount of money involved in the industry is frankly staggering, overwhelming, and astounding. While I realize not all will agree on treating this subject in church, I am of the mind that it would be the height of irresponsibility for me as the pastor or for you as a parent to keep our heads in the sand on this topic. So I want to appeal to you parents to be courageous on this topic. And I want to make a direct appeal to the men of the parish to wise up and confront this topic with a masculine strength that is proper to our vocation as men and fathers. If we, husbands, fathers, big brothers, uncles, spiritual fathers, godfathers, grandfathers, if we have not yet spoken directly to this topic with a young person in our care, and if we have not taken steps to protect our homes and environments, why not? Do something, and do it right away. So what do we do? It's vitally important that we all accept and embrace our God-given dignity. That's the good news. Do our actions reflect that dignity? Are we living a life worthy of our calling? It is equally imperative that parents recognize the importance of the family. The home you create 
and the intentional actions you make are the best support that you can give to your children to live holy and healthy lives. We cannot underestimate the influence parents have on their children. It is your responsibility, first and foremost, to be aware, to be alert, and to be informed. Gone are the days when we might sort of laugh off that a child knows more about the internet than the parents do. At the very least, you need to know about parental controls. You need to set boundaries and you need to monitor usage, which includes when and where your children have and use their devices. One of the simplest and smartest things I have heard a parent do is to have a house rule where at a certain time of evening and certainly by bedtime, all internet-enabled devices, smartphones, etc., have to be relinquished and are kept in the parent's bedroom overnight. Since the majority of exposure and use happens while kids are bored in their bedroom, this practice can greatly reduce access to this material. But this is not just a warning to parents. Rather, all of us must be wise and teach our youth the blessings and the beauty of human sexuality. Otherwise, we, ha we leave our secular culture to do the formation, and frankly, that should scare us to death. Yet so many parents, grandparents, godparents, family members, and trusted friends never talk about the sacredness of sexuality and may not even know what the church teaches about chastity. Creating a safe haven is more than just being watchful and aware for the good of our children. It also includes what you teach them and your own behavior, including what you do when nobody is looking. Let me share with you three basic recommendations for parents to create a safe haven in your home. First, take control of your children's devices. Use parental controls, and if a device doesn't allow parental controls to be downloaded, then don't buy it for them. Children are in no way capable to access all the information that an internet-enabled device allows. Frankly, adults aren't capable of that either. It's too much, and it's a loaded gun placed in their hands while you walk away if there's no control on it. Two, do not allow devices in the bedroom. This places kids at a greater risk of exposure to explicit content. It encourages isolation and lack of connection with others and thereby creates a difficult environment for accountability. Seems to me that it is a fairly standard bit of conventional wisdom, and I bet you all do this quite naturally yourselves. If your child wants to have a sleepover at a friend's house, you want to know a whole lot of information about that other family. You want to know who the parents are. You want to know the address. You want to know the phone number. You want to know their values. You want to know the names. You want to know them a little bit more personally. Maybe at a school event, you try to get to know them, or you go out to coffee first. If a child has an internet-enabled device in their bedroom, you are sending them to a sleepover at a total stranger's house. It's just not wise. 
And thirdly, talk to your children openly and often. Parents have the most significant influence on their kids' behaviors, more than their friends, their school, or even their parish church. Make every effort at authentic human connection and relationship in the family. Avoid that modern tendency of being so frantic and chaotic all over the place with way too much going on and too many activities, never time to talk, never time to sit down, rarely a meal together, sitting in front of the TV doesn't count. Real human connections can address that need we all have for relationship and it can naturally start to undercut the tendency to find relationship in the virtual world, which is not real. Impure material is one of the great obstacles sabotaging our mission of evangelization and making disciples. God calls us to more. He offers us freedom. Let us confidently take the next steps in creating safe havens in our homes and in our families. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. After living a life of dissipation, the son was alone, hungry, and riddled with guilt. He decided to go home expecting to be treated like one of his father's servants. But when he got there, his father saw him first and he ran out to him embraced him and kissed him because his son was lost but was now found. He was dead and has come to life again.